This is games in schools and libraries. The podcast about board, card and digital games and the ways in which they can find a place in schools or at the local library. Hosting provided by the Games for Educators website www.g4ed.com G'day and welcome to this episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. My name is Giles Pritchard. I'm a teacher at, uh, at St George's Road Primary School in Shepparton, Victoria and teach a grade 3-4 class. I use uh, board and card games and iOS games in my class uh, to support learning and uh, for a whole range of different reasons in games clubs, for games days and uh, many other purposes. You can find me on the website uh, at gameschoolslibraries.com. You can find our whole podcast there. And uh, you can find me on my blog, castlebymoonlight.blogspot.com or on Twitter as P. And I'm Donald Dennis. I'm the... Biz Tech Center Librarian at the Georgetown County Library System, where I man the Business Technology Center and the Young Adult Programming, where we do games, video games, technology, and, and all kinds of other programming for uh, youth and, uh, and children of all ages. You can find me online as On Board Games on Twitter, and everyone else as Walsfeo, that's W-A-L-S-F-E-O. And you have another podcast, Dom, suggested by your Twitter handle. That's right, On Board Games, which is onboardgames.net. It's 100-plus episodes old now, and mm-hmm. we feel like we've just started to hit our stride. And Giles, you should feel free to come back and join us once again. <laughs> I thought my invitation had been rescinded. No, no, we'll have five episodes recorded again before you can come back. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're not exiled. Ooh, that's a relief. Ah, very good. And you've got how's uh, on RPGs going? I know that's something that you and Eric Dewey also have on board games have gotten the works. How's that coming along? Uh, well, I was having some trouble with the website, which I've just tore down and rebuilt back up. So it actually should be up by several weeks by the time this episode comes out. So look for us at. So yes, you can find that at onrpgs.net. Excellent. Um, all right. Well, this episode we're talking about dexterity games and just. Glancing a sort of cursory eye over our show notes here, Don, we've got an awful lot written down, so don't be surprised if uh, this episode ends up being uh, cut in two and um, available <laughs> one week after the other in that way. So so much like The Hobbit, this could be bloated into three episodes, all of which are too long. <laughs> Well, you know, we're talking about dexterity games. If we start bringing things off genre and and making stuff up entirely, then, yeah, it might be like the Hobbit movies. (laughs) Brilliant. Okay. Uh, Well, before we get into that, um, I've been playing with something that I think some teachers ought to know about, or uh, librarians as well, especially since libraries are sort of involved in this. It's uh, called Ingress, I-N-G-R-E-S-S, by... it's. It's by the Niantic Project, which is sort of uh, some employees at Google did this, um, and they were involved in some other uh, real live space mobile um, projects before. But the whole premise is it's an sort of an augmented reality game where, and this of course hasn't actually happened. I had to explain this to my wife 
um, that uh, that uh, you know when the uh, hadron collider went online, discovered uh, you know the god particle that uh, they discovered that there were portals sort of opening up in the world, and they were uh, you know kind of oozing uh, exotic matter into the world. And there are two different factions who are trying to gain control of these portals because the portals allow people to influence reality. And so now to get my exercise, instead of simply, you know, trying to drag myself to the gym, I'm wandering around downtown Georgetown or around Polly's Island and hacking these portals and trying to gain resources or trying to, you know, go up to the market commons where our arch enemies live and, and trying to hack their portals and take them back from them. And it's pretty neat because the locations are, well, there's a bunch of civic buildings. So the libraries, the fire departments, uh, courthouses, uh, graveyards, uh, and then a bunch of pieces of art all have sort of portals attached to them. And so I now know more about Georgetown and sort of its local history and culture. I learned more in one month of playing this game about Georgetown County, culture, history, that kind of thing than I did in the first year that I lived in the area. And so wow. it's pretty darn neat. And, of course, if you see somebody standing outside your school or library, uh, you know, tapping on their phone, looking around covertly, and then disappearing, there's a good chance this is what they're playing because my understanding is it's a worldwide game. Fantastic. I've heard um, quite a bit about this. And so you say you use the word hacking, Don. Can you just break that open? Um, the image immediately springs to mind of sort of pasty teenagers in grandmother's attic somewhere um, with an old, you know, rebuilt computer breaking into the Pentagon's mainframes. What do you mean by that? What, what does that actually entail? What I mean is you're standing next to a portal, which no one can see, but your phone tells you, hey, you're within 20 yards of it or whatever it is. Yep. And then one of the options on the phone is hacking and you push that button and it beeps for a little bit and then you get resources so you're not doing real hacking which is very important and the other thing is is <laughs> you also don't want to have your volume turned up really loud on your phone when there are strangers nearby because they're going to think you are up to no good i could mm. see you doing this near like a military base because i bet military bases appear on this list or at least there are places in the world where um you know police stations or or other you know armed people hang out and, and if they think you're up to no good, there's no telling what could happen. So just be careful what you're doing. And, and you have to have an Android phone to play this. It's not available on iOS or on any other uh, platform because it does use the Google engine. And the people, like I said, who, who designed it are, are or were Google employees. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Also, it's in beta, so you can't get a key for it. You unless you do something special because you know, you sign up for a key and they say, sure, we'll put you on the list. But what I had to do is I created a piece of artwork and I slipped the logo for one of the two factions in on it. And I said, what is this? I discovered this on the wall in the library. And somebody said, Hey, that's cool. And then they sent me the key so that I could then, you know, log in and start playing. Yeah, it sounds uh, a really fascinating game. I love the way that it involves people in, you know, that you know, making their um, afternoon walk a little bit more interesting. I, I, I'd be fascinated to um, know if there's a dossier anywhere of those people um, arrested or put on blacklists around the world uh, from playing Ingress. That would be a fascinating, fascinating thing to know. Well, and also you can sort of play it while you're driving because a lot of the portals are right near the road so you could sort of pull over a little bit 
and push the hack button. And, and I don't really recommend this. All right. Unless you're <laughs> off the road or you're in a parking space. But I've seen people who they slow down and they push the button as they're kind of rolling past one of these things. And, and that could be a traffic hazard. But by and large, and, and it's really tough to discuss this game with a straight face to somebody who's not playing it because mm. you break it down into its component elements and it sounds stupid. Well, well yeah, I've not played it. I've heard a little bit about it. But it, what I what I like about it is, uh, first of all, any any app that that utilizes augmented reality, I find fascinating. But the idea that you know you're walking just on your general walk, or whatever else, but then your phone um, with the augmented reality, you're also playing with this game and engaging in the story of the game, and it's encouraging you to go to new places, to to look at different things, to you know, be aware of your surroundings and your environment. That just sounds like a really interesting, um, yeah, really interesting experience. Well, okay. I, I'm sure that, that some of what you said is, is what they meant to have happen, but <laughs> it didn't actually work out that way. I mean, I, I am aware of certain things about the environment, but when you're walking around and you're kind of spending half of your time looking at your phone and the mm. other half time making yourself trip, not trip when you're walking, then you don't have a lot of real attention for the outside world. Until you get there and you stop and you're waiting for something to happen. So there are isolated bubbles around Georgetown that I'm very familiar with now. It's like, oh, the cannon that they put there that was used, you know, in the Civil War. Yes, I now know where this is, a little bit more about its history. And and hooray. And the attack on Georgetown sign, which is right outside of town. You know, I know where that is. And I know it's practically a cell dead spot. So it's not making me real happy with my carrier. So you said you learned a whole bunch about your area, Georgetown and Polly's Island. What? Um, how, how did that unfold, that, that learning take place? Well, uh, one of the things that they've really focused on is if there's ever a monument in the area, and in Georgetown here, they have these plaques here, which is like, this happened at so-and-so time. Uh, then someone took a picture of that, and that's where one of the portals is spawned. So... You're sitting there, you're clicking your button, and of course, frequently if you're uh, you know online and looking at the Intel map, uh, you can push the button you know for that site, and it'll bring up the description of the place, which matches that placard. Yep. So it's like, oh, I'm waiting for something to happen. What does this say? I will read it, and then I learned that you know at the little islands right outside of Georgetown, apparently. There was an attack on Georgetown or where they got ready for it or they marshaled it. And I can imagine that in some places like in Charlottesville, where they're very proud of their heritage, that there's going to be a thousand portals there by the time I get there in a year and a half, that Charlottesville, Virginia is just going to be packed with this the, these things. Yep. That sounds fascinating. So anyway, it's a neat thing. Uh, you know, and my son and I, we went out when I had a day off work and we spent three or four hours wandering around at the market commons here uh, in the Myrtle beach area and grabbed a lot of portals and just, just tore things up. And it was pretty cool because it's rare that he and I have the opportunity to engage in something that's like not in front of the computer that we can both really enjoy. And, and honestly, you know, have a lot of fun talking about. And, and this is, you know, cause he's in the teenage years now that it's not that cool to be hanging around your parents but, uh, you know, this was an excellent opportunity, something else I could show him. And, we, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the things we were looking at, 
like when we looked at the uh, you know Air History Museum pieces that were where the Air Force Base used to be. And that, that was pretty neat. Oh, it sounds like a lot of fun. It was it was a blast. I suppose, um, you know, news-wise, on my end, there's not been um, an awful lot different since last episode. Uh, by the time this episode um, hits uh, the listeners' uh, various devices, uh, our games club should be up and running for a couple of weeks, I would imagine. Um, and we've got another games day upcoming as of uh, this recording time in about probably eight weeks' time. So slowly starting to get some preparations, um, you know, in place for that in terms of trying to build up or investigate those people interested in in fulfilling the games ambassadors' roles again and and all that sort of stuff. Um, But really, as we're recording this, it's the very, very beginning of a new school year. So uh, exciting times, but um, not a lot of movement aside from just some general plans in place. (laughs) Well, all right then. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about our feed burner and how they need to resubscribe to the uh, to the feed? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Don. Um, we just recently, or a couple of probably a couple of months ago now, in all honesty, as of recording this, we we built our new website, which is gameschoolslibraries.com. Um, so you can head over there and find a list of our episodes, a little bit about Don and myself, a little bit about the podcast, um, and so forth. So. Um, it's it's it, it's probably fairly bare bones, but it's it's you know our home on the internet, I suppose, um, and you can go there to find out more information about us and the show. Um, is a part of that we also set up a new feed, a feed burner um, feed, and you can find the link to that feed on our um, on our website, so gameschoolslibraries.com. Um, hopefully, by the time this episode has dropped, that feed will have updated to iTunes. But if it hasn't, um, it'd be fantastic, listeners, if. Um, all, t- all one or two of you <laughs> could um, update your feeds and, and those sorts of things to be those RS the, the new feed burner feeds because that then will allow us to get hopefully some better statistics on you know our listener base and, and how many people are listening to the episodes and so on. Right, this is a big deal for us because uh, as wonderful it is as working with the Games for Educators website, uh, they're not really set up to do stats the way that podcasters like stats. And so we have no idea, you know, we sort of know how many people have visited our site. That's a great thing. But we don't really know how many people have listened to the show or how many people have, you know, grabbed it or, you know, what it is. So it'll give us a better idea, you know, of where some of our listeners are. And and we don't know what house you're at. We just know, hey, we've got some Australian listeners and we've got some American listeners. Mm. And maybe there's a couple in England or something. We have no idea right now. So the more people we can get to go through FeedBurner, the better we'll be able to figure out, well, yes, we need to cover more international stuff or we need to, you know, work, you know, at a more localized level just so that we can find out how better to serve our listeners. That's right. And um, so, yeah, that, that's that been a sort of um, ongoing project for us, but we're happy to say that that is uh, all up and running. <laughs> say that with a with a um, knock on the, the wood table in front of me here. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's our new home on the web, gameschoolslibraries.com. Our email hasn't changed. That's still schoolsandlibraries uh, at gmail.com. But uh, certainly our website, you can find us at uh, gameschoolslibraries.com. So there'll be a link to all of that in the show notes as per usual. Well, hooray, hooray. Now that we've blown through 20 minutes of chatter, (laughs) why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about our topic of the day? 
dexterity game. So I'm really excited about this episode, Don, because, um, you know, dexterity games, I suppose, cop a lot of flack in some ways because they're not as um, intelli- not, not the pure intellectual pursuits that some games are, um, you know, games like chess or Go or, or others. Um, but they are nonetheless tests of skill in, in different ways. They're also uh, a huge amount of fun, and, and this is one thing that you know I really, really love about them. So dexterity games are a favourite sort of genre of game of mine. And what do we mean by dexterity games? Fun. How, how can we be having fun in, in schools or libraries? That, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> this does not compute. That's right. No, I agree. Um, I love dexterity games. I'm not terribly good at them. And so when I was, you know, had a younger son, they were an excellent opportunity for us to play games where my son had a wonderful chance to be able to beat me without me having to, you know, play softball. Mm. It's like I can try my hardest and there's a good chance that my son can compete on the even level with me and even possibly beat me. And so that was a wonderful opportunity because for me, it's very frustrating to play on the level of my son, especially since he likes to go, ha, I beat you and, and sort of be, you know, not necessarily the best sport, but when he honestly beat me and it's all in good fun, then that's great. But, you know, so that's one of the reasons that I love it. And that's sort of a selfish personal reason. Oh, look, I think they're fantastic, you know, and and you're right. They do level the playing field. Uh, In fact, a lot of the dexterity games that we'll be talking about probably over uh, over this episode are games that kids will excel at, you know, that I can think of plenty of times when I've been playing um, things like, you know, Tear Off Tear or Gulo Gulo or uh, Tok Tok Woodman or Make and Break Jenga, a whole range where the kids just seem to have this innate ability to swoop in very quickly... um, um, do what they need to do and get their hands out and, and it doesn't fall apart. Whereas I go in careful, 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 oh, it all fell over, it all fell down. <laughs> right, so, right, you know, right. they, they do really level the playing field. But what do we mean by dexterity games, Don? Oh, okay. We're to, for dexterity games, we're talking about games where the test of skill is not in the mind and competing mentally against other players, but where it is some sort of physical activity that is one of the major determining factors in the game. Now, obviously, we're not talking about weightlifting, but mm. instead we're talking about, you know, you could almost consider golf or pool dexterity games as well as sports. Yeah, there's, there is a gray line. You think of something like darts, for example, you know, very it would there's a very gray line in between what constitutes a dexterity game what constitutes i suppose would be regarded more as as a as a sport but um yeah certainly i think you you spot on the money saying that that physical activity that that test of physical skill in some way and i would say that for the purposes of our conversations that we should stick either to yard games where you know, or games that are played on the t- tabletop yeah. Uh, you know, or games that are played within a very limited scope. So anything that requires a full field of play, something that you wouldn't be able to have at your house, <laughs> you know, or something that, you know, requires contact, uh, you know, as part of the game, that, that those would fall outside the realm, at least of our discussion. Yeah. So there are different, um, different obviously different dexterity games and they all take the idea of testing 
physical skills in different ways. What, what are some of those some of those different ways and some of the games that uh, you know that, that, that reflect those ways? But what, what are some of the different, I suppose, genres within the category of dexterity games? Okay, so we're going with the broader genres like uh, games that people are going to be all familiar with, like stacking games. Yeah, let, well, let's start with stacking games. Where you're trying to not mess things up. And, and it could be you're either pulling pieces out or putting people, pieces in. So something like a pickup sticks or uh, something like Django. Both very long standing games uh, and that, that everyone should be familiar with. And I don't know if they're called pickup sticks in Europe. So I apologize. Well, they uh, certainly are in Australia. All right. Uh, well, excellent. Uh, and so I think in that it's, it's pure you know, patience is a big part of what you're doing. Uh, another one of the, the stacking games, even though um, I guess stacking and pulling are two different categories, really. Uh, but um, these are ones where you're basically manipulating, manipulating pieces up and down and something that we didn't put on our list. If you're talking about a pulling game, you can almost also count the game Operation yeah. so, sort of in that category where specifically you're trying to manipulate in a very precise and fine motor skills sort of way. That, that, that's a key component, isn't it? All of these dexterity games involve your fine and gross motor skills and your ability to control, um, you know, that aspect, that, 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 that aspect of your, your kinesthetic skill, I suppose, I suppose um, to best effect. Right. And, and our listeners, they should. I mean, you know, we are a education sort of podcast. They should know either how to look this up or to mm. do it themselves. But uh, can you give us the difference between fine and gross motor skills? Um, yeah, look, fine motor skills are to do with, um, you know, fine hand movements, finger, very, as, as exactly the name suggests, those fine um, fine manipulation motor skills to do with fingers, thumbs, and all that sort of stuff, whereas gross motor skills are more to do with um, the larger joints, your hands, um, arms, elbows, and so on. So all of these games involve both aspects in some way or another. For something right. like um, Jenga, you know, you're wanting to grab, you know, physically take hold of a block within within the tower, um, not, you know, with your hand shaking um, and very carefully ease it out of place, you know, and that requires control of, um, you know, your fingers, your thumb, your hand, your, your wrist, um, you know, all the way up and... You know, as simplistic as that might sound, when, when from my point of view, I'm dealing with very, very young kids, um, you know, some of these fine and gross motor skills haven't fully developed. And so these games can be a great way to get the kids to be thinking about their, their, their physical behaviours, um, the, the manipulation of the objects that they're, you know, that they're, they're playing with, um, you know, and they can see their successes and they can see where they messed up. And, you know, they're just, they're really good games for those sort of things. Well, and I've noticed another side effect at the library that the kids who are a little antsy, who are a little uh, more likely to be physically disruptive in the classes, that when they're engaged in these activities, that they're having to exercise restraint on how they behave or they move. And, and you know, this may, I mean, it's very anecdotal. There's not a lot of proof for this, but it seems like it helps them develop this control that they know how they can behave and they get used to, well, I have to be, uh, you know, quiet when it's not my turn because I can't knock over the table 
or I'm wanting everybody else to be quiet during there. And it's sort of teaching once again, you know, real life behaviors that, uh, you know, are reinforcing some of those through play. I think uh, certainly I think that that experience of play, especially where a child like that has had uh, success in a game, um, can be used as a great analogy for a teaching point with that child about, um, you know, their their restraint, their control, their patience, um, and those sorts of things. It can be that that can be a really useful teaching point because it's a real life analogy. Um, and then I suppose the, the the teaching happens when you're able to take it beyond the game and then um, demonstrate a link between that and some of the behaviours that might have been faced, you know, might have caused them to, to have issues um, beyond the context of games, you know, in the, in the broader school context or, or life context or whatever else. Right. And I, I mean, I suppose it's also possible just that because the kids are getting to be physical, that they don't feel the need to be so physical and they're shuffling about the classroom or, you know, you know, or the game room or whatever after the fact, mm. because they're not pinned down and told to, oh, you can't do anything, but they're concentrating and they're being physical and they're moving about. And, and so it seems, you know, whatever their cause, there's some sort of, you know, immediate impact on behavior in the classroom. Well, they're tactile games too. You are physically handling components. You're physically interacting with the pieces. Um, you know, you're you're imparting energy on them. You're you're, you're picking them up, putting them down. Um, you know, you're trying to be quick or you're trying to be very restrained. You know, depending on the different games and and you know. They're very, very involving and very, very tactile, not just for the mind, for the whole body as well. And so, you know, I think they're, they're really great games for that reason. Well, you know, that ties in, I suppose, you know, to step away. Let's come back to stacking games and pulling games in a second. But it comes back, you know, you were talking about in the library context, I'm talking about in the classroom context. These sorts of games, we're talking, you know, picking things up, things falling over, um, noise, involvement, excitement. You know, what what issues surround that in actually using those sort of games in the library? Well, yeah, definitely noise is an issue. But, you know, if you've got a felt tablecloth or something for pieces to be played on, it, it actually it works in two ways. One, it makes the game just a slightly bit more unstable, yep. <laughs> which can add a little bit more excitement to it. And the other is, of course, it stops the noise from being quite so loud. But we have a walled off room where... You know, we can close the door and sure people can see in through all the windows, but they're not going to be bothered by the noise nearly so much. Uh, and kids, however, because this is a physical game, kids tend to get a little more vocal and, yep. you know, they, there is a little bit more raucousness right around the table or a little bit more excitement than you'll get on some of the uh, more cerebral games. Yeah, and I'd say go go a step beyond that as well. I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, you know, I'm thinking about my games days where we've got a huge number of tables, um, a huge, relatively huge number of tables out. A lot of people playing games at the at the same time. Um, one of the things that I'm really conscious of is if there is a dexterity game, let's let's just think Jenga at this stage, um, if there is a game like Jenga out on a table, it's not on a table with another game. Now, some of these tables might be large, some small. Don't put these dexterity games with other games. Not only is the noise and excitement of the dexterity game going to interfere with the other game, especially if it's one of those more thinking-type games, but also the, the player's... 
um, as a part of that, need to be aware of the way they don't they just interact with the game, but the table and the space around the game. If they're thumping their feet on the floor, you know, that can cause the vibrations that will cause the, the Jenga stack to fall over. If they bump the table inadvertently, again, you know, that can fall over or have a, a negative impact on the game. So um, all of that awareness of the, of the space, not just of the game, but around the game is really important as well. It's something, um, you know, that, that I'm really aware of when setting these games up at games days and games clubs and so on. Right. And in fact, a lot of these games, you're not even going to want to have chairs at the table Correct. because yeah. people are going to want to get to all sides of it and they're going to want to be able to get a different perspective. And well, perspective matters a lot in games because, you know, you can show, hey, look, from your side, this is the move that you see that's appropriate. You know, on chess is a great way to show this. It's like, look, from your side of the battlefield, uh, this is what you should obviously do or this is what you're, what's important to you. But if you turn the board around, here's what's important to the other players. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a 3D game or in a, in a physical game, something with agility, then it's like, oh, I don't want to pull the one from this side. I want to pull the tile or the plank or the whatever from the other side. And and that really matters. And you can't exactly put it on a uh, on a ro- rotating dolly or something, and or Lazy Susan, rather, and, and just spin the game around because that will end up spelling doom for the whole game. Yeah, that's right. Pieces flying everywhere. Um, so... Yeah, perspective matters. The space matters. Uh, you know, something and smaller tables work great for a lot of these dexterity games because uh, you know you want to be able to get around. You know, almost a glorified bar stool, you know, works well for games like Django where the whole game is a tower. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think a small table is a great way to manage it. Um, you know, some of the games that we'll be talking about. You know, they do that. They are exactly like that. You know, there are times when you want to get up and walk around the table and have a look at, um, you know, what might be the best option in terms of picking this up or putting this down or um, where am I going to take this from or where am I going to try and put that down or whatever else. And so, um, yeah, a small table works perfectly. Well, let's jump straight into talking about some of these categories, you know, of games and some of the games, I suppose, that that um, exemplify in, in, in our minds the, the st- style of games. We started off talking about stacking games. Right, yeah, there's a few there that we, we didn't get a chance to uh, to discuss at length. Did we want to yeah. go on a little bit more about some of those or move Yeah, move absolutely. On? So stacking games traditionally, like uh, something like Jenga, are about uh, having different pieces. Some of them might be all the same size pieces. They might be all different pieces uh, and building something out of them. And it usually involves some form of stacking um, with the concept that if it collapses or falls over, that then is a, is a negative thing in the game terms. So what are some of the games, Don, that, that, that you think exemplify this sort of category? Well, you know, the one I had at my parents' house when I was growing up was Blockhead, which has a bunch of weird shaped pieces you know, some look like uh, they're cylinders, others are, are chairs and whatnot, and you're trying to build a tower and not collapse everything that's going on. And, you know, I enjoyed this game way too much as a kid, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not, there's no complexity to it. It's all how can you get things sort of stacked up. Uh, you know, the other one that I find very interesting is uh, Via Paletti, which yeah. I, you can't easily get at least in the U.S., and it's a towered structure where you've got you know, a bunch of pillars, you put a plank, you know, a, a place surface on top of that, and more pillars that you put another one on, and none of these are glued or fixed in any way, and then you're going to have to take pieces out from underneath one and stack them up the taller that it goes. 
and it's bright and it's colorful. And, and I think that that draws interest and, you know, you can sort of see things are going wrong when it's like, oh no, there's only three pieces on the bottom thing and someone has to pull from there. Yeah. And the great thing about Via Paletti is that every player has their own colour. So I might be red and Don, you might be blue and someone else might be green. Um, we have our pillars in our particular colours. So to begin with, we've got this base structure of all of these pillars there with, a, with the, the first floor on top of them. And then we pull the pillars out from underneath the first floor and we're putting them on top of the first floor, um, you know, with the idea that we want to build this structure up. And of course, when I'm playing, you know, I'm wanting to pull my colour out, but I'm wanting to make the structure um, so, you know, pull my pieces out in such a way that that the upper floors rely on the pillars, you know, that Don has got there or, or that the other players have got there because you get points for having your pillars higher up in the tower than anybody else. So, um, you know, a part of it, it's not just about that just physical stacking side of it. There is actually also some thought in what do I pull out, you know, what is what then is get the rest of the weight of the tower going to be resting on. You know, if I pull this out, then Don definitely won't be able to move that piece because if he does, the whole thing will come tumbling down. You know, that that whole um, aspect adds a layer of thought that I think is, is makes it a really neat game. All right, and, and a lot of dexterity games, especially in the pulling and or, uh, you know, stacking variety, what you're trying to do is put your piece in as difficult a position as you can so that it will keep somebody else from being able to do anything at all. And then that way they will cause it to collapse on their turn or cause things to go wrong. However, that happens in that game. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's a very tactical set of thinking there is like, okay, how can I do this for myself? And, and, you know, you can play it on such a way as to give yourself more opportunities or you take opportunities away from the people you're playing with. Mm, Absolutely. And some of the other, these, these other style of games, um, involve a sort of last man standing, um, you know, scoring system, I suppose. Um, you know, take, for example, a game like um, Tier Off Tier, which is also Animal Upon Animal in, in English, published by a German company called Haber, who make just wonderful kids' games. Um, but Tier Off Tier, every player has a set of animals. So, you know, I'll have a snake and a sheep and a lizard and a toucan and, and these all these sort of cut-out wooden pieces. In the middle of the table, there's a wooden crocodile. Um, on my turn, I roll a dice, and the dice will tell me that I've got to put one of my animals on, on top of the crocodile, or I've got to put two of my animals on there. And there are some other symbols that, that then change you know, the way the game works in other ways. But the, the basic premise of the game is that every turn, I'm going to be taking some of my pieces and, and, and putting them on top of the crocodile. And we're stacking them up. So they become, and because I've got toucans and monkeys and lizards and snakes and sheep, and they're all differently odd shaped pieces. You know, the snake is zigzaggy and long, and the sheep is this sort of cloud shape with, with little legs sticking out of it. I've got to be very careful in how I balance them all, and this tower becomes this very sort of ad hoc and very um, unstable structure as it starts to um, tower above the table surface. So, 
you know, it becomes a really exciting game, that balancing game about where do you slot this in and and um, trying to just balance this on top of that and so on. And in that game, you're, you're trying to be the first person to get rid of all of your animals. So one of the things I like about it is, is if the tower falls over, you're not out of the game, but the person who caused it to fall over has to take a certain number of those animals back. And because you're trying to get rid of all your animals, obviously that's a penalty. So it's just a really, really great um, stacking game. Right. Now, there's something... If you look at where these kinds of games come from, they've got a heritage that goes back probably, you know, since the dawn of time. And it's just playing with blocks or building blocks or, you know, there's a a group of them here or a kind of building block here in the U.S. called Lincoln Logs, where you're assembling a log cabin or something out of these uh, notched pieces of wood. And, you know, so you can play some of these stacking games without worrying so much about scoring. It's it's more about the experience, or it's more about just playing with them, as opposed to hey, who gets the best score, or who's the winner. Yeah. And so, especially if you're playing with younger kids, who yeah, sure, winning's important, but you know that's not necessarily to inflict that trauma on preschoolers. <laughs> then 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 you can find and engage in stacking or dexterity activities in, in a way that engages them without putting that kind of pressure. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. Um, you know, you spot on it. Anytime you've seen kids, you know, bust out a, a big box of dominoes and start setting them up, um, so that they can do the whole domino effect thing. Um, you know, you, that's exactly what you're saying. You know, you, you've again, you've got to be in control of your fine and gross motor skills. You've got to do all those same sort of things as you do when you're playing Jenga or Tier of Tier. But there's no winner or loser per se. It's all about you know just just having a bit of fun with the pieces. Right, and and you talked about you know dragging out dominoes to do this. You don't have to have an official set of pieces to play, you know, stacking or building games. And in fact, every time we trot out Settlers of Catan, I always play the birdhouse game, which is to see how many of the roads you can stack end on end and still get one of the little houses up on the top of it, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever it is. If, if you don't see people, you know, making their condos of Catan or their row house of Catan or whatever with their pieces, then... You know, you're not just not playing Catan, right? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, it sounds good. Um, there's a, there's another couple of games in this category that I really think are worth mentioning. Um, there are a couple in our school games collection. We've got a couple of copies of a game called Make and Break. Um, this is by uh, Ravensburger um, and should be relatively reasonably available. Um, and make and break, there are a bunch, maybe, I'm, I'm thinking, eight to ten coloured blocks, and these look exactly like the sort of um, rectangular prism blocks that you would get in any wooden set of blocks. They're brightly coloured, you know, reds and yellows, or red, yellow, green, blue, purple, yada, yada. Um, uh, so they look exactly like bo- um, building blocks. The, the way the game works is that you'll have a timer, the way I tend to play the game is, in fact, without the timer, everybody has exactly the same time. So everybody might have uh, one minute, let's say, and they're a deck of cards. You flip over a card, and the cards will show different structures on them. Um, some of those structures will be all white, and in the case that they're all white, you can put any coloured block anywhere as long as you build uh, something that is analogous to the, the, the picture on the, the card then some of the cards will have all of the blocks coloured in. And in this case, you need to have the blue block where the blue block is on the picture and the red block where the red block is on the picture. And you're trying to build this sort of structure, stack up this structure that looks exactly like the card 
um, that, that you flipped over. So I managed to build up the first one, I knock mine down, I flip over the next card and I build the, that one then. I'm doing that as fast as I can with the object of building as many of those cards in my in the, in the time I've got available as I possibly can can do. This is this is one game that has it just had huge amount of success at our school. The kids have just loved it. Um, the, the reasons, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. There's the time pressure. Um, you know, it's fun. Not, it's not just fun to play. It's fun to watch as well. And this works really, really well with the younger kids as well as with the older kids. And one of the things that I really like about it is that with the very, very young kids, you know, it, it's all about taking turns, about being patient, about this is the process of actually sitting down to play a game. But it's also fine, gross motor skills. It's also colour recognition. It's also those visual perception skills of being able to say this needs to be there and that needs to be there and, and, and their ability to balance things. It's just a fantastic game. And, you know, I can't recommend it highly enough. The kids at school love it. Um, and it, it's just a lot of fun generally. And that's make and break. Right, right, right. Um, you know, as long as we're talking, uh, you know, since I have wonderfully lumped stacking and pulling into sort of the same category, um, and you mentioned Gulo Gulo earlier, yep. uh, there's another game by Haba that, that I'd recommend called Zetternix. It's sort of a replacement for pickup sticks. And, uh, you know, it's been a while since I played this, but it's got a ring. And do you know this game? Yeah, yeah, you've got it's got like a, a ring, like a napkin ring, and then you've got pickup sticks of different colours, and there's three different colours, and each colour is a different thickness. Imagine you know different thicknesses of, of dowel. Um, so you put them all inside the the napkin ring, and then give them a sort of a, a, a swish around, and they end up standing up inside this ring, sort of like a haphazard sort of TP sort of look. And then you roll a dice, I think, and then you've got to pull out the the piece that matches the colour on the dice, uh, right. obviously without making the whole thing tumble over into the table. And so it sort of puts a little more structure on a very, very unstructured game. So you could play pickup sticks with them, or you could play something with it normally, and then you could add the ring and... And it'd be a neat little game. Yeah, really good little one, that one. And speaking of Gulo Gulo, you know, I don't know if we, we spoke enough about that. Um, this one is a, a fantastic game. You have uh, in the middle of a table a wooden basket, and inside that wooden basket are a bunch of little wooden eggs of different sizes. You've got small ones and larger ones, all brightly coloured. They look uh, like look peanut like, M&Ms. <laughs> I was just about to say exactly the same thing. And I've seen kids try and put them in their mouth. Um, but they, they, they do, they look exactly like peanut M&Ms. And um, so you, you're, you're all trying to travel along this path um, from the start to the finish. As you flip over the tiles, the tile will be a different colour, so it might be a green tile or a blue tile or a red tile or whatever, and you've got to pick very carefully an egg of that colour out of the, the basket in the middle. And the key is that there's a, there's a stick standing up in the middle of the basket called the egg alarm, and it's got a sort of a weighted end. So it's, it's held up by the, the pressure of the various eggs stacked in around it, and as those eggs start to be removed, as players are moving along the track, of course it starts to lean you know precariously in one direction or another and until finally someone you know it's the light the, the straw that broke the dromedary's back and, and the egg alarm crashes into the table so you know and then that player's got to move back a little ways but you know it's it's one of those really enjoyable games it's visually appealing it plays really well um 
if you fall behind, it's also really easy to catch up in the game. So it's a really neat kids game. I understand right. it's a little hard to get though, Don, at the moment. And it is. It's an amazingly fun game, and it's sort of like an upgrade to Candyland, right? Because you're flipping over. The, you're saying, "Well, how far am I going to go along this path that we've built?" And you're moving up to something of the next color. Yeah. So movement on this game is really simple, as well as the whole pulling the the eggs out of the center, which adds a lot of tension because you're watching that stick, that alarm stick, and you know it's like, oh. Is, is he going to fail? And, and it's something that kids with their smaller fingers and their more delicate touch, you know, have the opportunity to do very well at. Uh, and, and it's pretty exciting. Oh, it's just, you know, I've played this game and I've leaned in sort of with the surgeon's precision very carefully, very slowly, very deliberately trying to, you know, procure this egg from the, the basket without sort of knocking everything over and, of course, failing and then watching some little, you know, deft-handed sort of Oliver Twist sort of Fagin's gang sort of character nip in with this, you know, amazing dexterity and, and within the flash of an eye I've removed this tiny egg from the basket and nothing's changed, you know. It, it's uh, it's an amazing game in that way. Kids just seem to have this real knack of being able to, to, to grab things out of that basket without knocking that egg alarm over. Right, and it might give you the opportunity to figure out who you should keep an eye out. <laughs> on when they come up to your desk. It's like, are your paper clips disappearing all the time? Well, now you know who the person is who might have been taking them. Uh, I, th- I thought I put my phone down somewhere here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, we've been doing this for 45 minutes or so, so I think it's time that we break this episode and then we can jump into the next one so that, uh, you know, we don't make our listener don't wear our listeners' ears out. Oh, it sounds fantastic. And we'll be back next episode. We'll be talking about other sorts of dexterity games and uh, giving our two cents on some of the best. Uh, until next time, this has been Giles Pritchard. And I'm Donald Dennis. And uh, you've been listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find us on our website, gameschoolslibraries.com. And go check out our new link so that you can download us through FeedBurner. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, if you are subscribed to iTunes, that should do all that for you. Yeah. Games in Schools and Libraries is kindly hosted by the Games for Educators website. You can find them at www.g4ed.com. You can subscribe to their newsletter, check out games through their game finder, and of course, it's the home of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Drop by and post comments on the episodes. We love feedback. Games in Schools and Libraries is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. To view a copy of this license, visit our webpage at the Games for Educators website.